Welcome to The Green Investor, powered by Investopedia. I'm Caleb Silver, the Editor-in-Chief of Investopedia and your guide and fellow traveler on our journey into what it means to be a green investor today and where this investing theme is headed in the future. On this week's show, the U.S. Supreme Court is expected to hand down a ruling this month that would limit the federal government's ability to rein in greenhouse gas emissions. We break down what that means for government oversight over a wide swath of areas. Plus, we spend some time with Peter Kroll of Earth Equity Advisors, one of the first investment advisors to dedicate their practice to sustainable investing. And wine growing and investing is already being impacted by climate change. We hear from an expert panel on what's changing and how it will impact the industry. But first and always, this podcast is for informational and educational purposes only and does not constitute investment advice. We will not make recommendations to buy, sell, or hold a particular security or asset, although we may discuss financial products with our guests. Some of our guests may invest in securities mentioned on this podcast. Some of our guests may sell or market securities mentioned on this podcast, but all listeners should do their own research or consult with their financial advisor or broker before making any investment decisions. The Supreme Court is expected to issue a ruling this month that could curtail the Biden administration's efforts to rein in greenhouse gases, and its impact could weaken the federal government's power to oversee wide swaths of American life well beyond climate change. The upcoming decision on the Environmental Protection Agency's climate oversight in a case officially known as West Virginia versus the Environmental Protection Agency could provide conservative justices on the nation's highest court an opportunity to undermine federal regulations on a number of issues, from limiting greenhouse emissions, drug pricing, financial regulations, and net neutrality. At the root of the case, Critics of federal government oversight, including 27 Republican state attorneys generals and critics of the EPA who say that it is, quote, unlawful for federal agencies under the president's supervision to make major decisions about industry regulations without clear authorization from Congress. As for climate-related regulations, they argue that the executive branch of government which oversees the EPA should not be allowed to set rules and regulations around greenhouse gas emissions. They say that should be up to Congress. Ironically, neither of the actual regulations at the heart of the case, the Obama-era Clean Power Plan and the Trump-era Affordable Clean Energy Rule are currently in effect, but the Supreme Court's decision expected by the end of the month could greatly reduce the Oval Office's ability to regulate the fossil fuel industry's greenhouse gas emissions. This is a big decision, especially as we head towards midterm elections here in the U.S. this fall. Let's do some headlines. China is experiencing weather extremes that are forcing millions of people to flee the southern part of the country due to record rainfall, while hundreds of millions of people in the north are experiencing abnormally high temperatures. From May 1st to June 15th, the average precipitation in Fujian, Guangdong, and Guangxi provinces reached 621 millimeters, the highest recorded in six decades. That's according to the Xinhua News Agency. Floods occurred along 117 rivers in the Pearl River Basin during the same period. The manufacturing hub of Guangzhou saw its highest tide in a century just last week with waters exceeding 2.6 meters. Floods are pretty standard in China during the summer months, especially in the low-lying areas along the Yangtze River and its tributaries. But China's latest blue book on climate change expect them to become more frequent and more extreme. As gas prices spike to record highs here in the U.S., electric vehicle prices are spiking right along with them. Faced with intense demand from consumers, rising material costs, and an ongoing shortage of microprocessors, EV makers are raising their prices across the board. Tesla is hiking sticker prices by as much as $6,000 per car, its third increase 
this year. Ford has raised the price of the Mustang Mach-E, as did electric startup Rivian Automotive. The average price of an EV reached $60,984 last month, well above the $46,634 mark for the overall market, according to Edmunds.com. That average excludes Tesla, which doesn't share pricing data with research firms. But according to Electric, the popular Model Y long-range model now starts at $65,990, up from $62,990. Ford CEO Jim Farley recently said it now costs $25,000 more to build a battery-powered Mustang Mach-E than a gas-fueled Edge SUV, and higher costs are wiping out profit margins on the company's electric vehicles. Speaking of microchips, the $52 billion the federal government is investing to increase semiconductor production here in the U.S. could be an opportunity for the industry to become more sustainable. That's according to a recent analysis from S&P Global Market Intelligence. The Chips for America Act, which became law last year but remains unfunded, would provide federal funds to increase U.S. chip production but does not set environmental guidelines about how it's done. Advocates for sustainable technology development are urging the world's largest chip makers, including NVIDIA, Broadcom, Texas Instruments, Advanced Micro Device, and applied materials to make their chip-making processes more sustainable. The issue is, none of those five companies have their own net-zero targets, and the entire industry is plagued with a supply crunch and are trying to ramp up production using current processes. Those include the use of fluorinated compounds, which the EPA classifies as high GWP, greenhouse warming potential gases. They use these to create intricate circuitry patterns upon silicon wafers and rapidly clean chemical vapor deposition tool chambers. In other words, those gases help chipmakers make chips faster. But according to the EPA, under normal operating conditions, anywhere between 10 to 80% of fluorinated GHGs pass through the semiconductor manufacturing tool chambers unreacted and are then released into the air. Nevertheless, S&P says the funding and development phase of building up domestic chip fabrication foundries presents the opportunity to invest in greener, sustainable technologies. Food and beverage companies are falling short of the goal for reducing carbon emissions, and that's according to a new report from Alix Partners, an industry consultant and data firm. Alix found that in a best-case scenario, food and beverage manufacturers, suppliers, and retailers may manage to reduce emissions by 29%. By the year 2030. That's going to fall well short of the 38% goal set out in the United Nations 2015 Paris Agreement and by the Science-Based Targets Initiative. The study, published in the report, found that the companies in the industry have barely reduced emissions since the signing of the Paris Agreement, and that a 38% goal is what's required to limit the rise in the Earth's temperature to 1.5 degrees Celsius. Food and beverage production is estimated to contribute one-third of total annual greenhouse gas emissions. Japan is set to make a $40 billion investment in sustainable initiatives through its development bank. The Development Bank of Japan has earmarked about 40% of its total lending and investment, which is 5.5 trillion yen or $40.7 billion, for environmental, social, and government's purposes over the five years beginning last April 2021. But the bank has stated that it intends to scrutinize those investments more carefully now to avoid greenwashing. Canada may be the latest country to ban harmful single-use plastics. Most plastic bags, disposable cutlery, and plastic straws would fall under the new ban, as well as stir sticks, cups, and six-pack rings for those beer cans. The executive order from Prime Minister Trudeau's office will phase in over the next several years, starting with a ban on the manufacture and import of single-use plastics from December of 2022. Sales of the items will be prohibited the following year, while the measure will put an end to the export of Canadian plastics by the end of 2025. President Trudeau tweeted, Over the next 10 years, this ban will result in the estimated elimination of over 1.3 million tons of plastic waste and more than 22,000 tons of plastic pollution.
Other countries which have put in place various bans on single-use plastic include Chile, the UK, and the European Union. The US has yet to issue a ban despite the fact that it ranks as the world's leading contributor of plastic waste by generating about 287 pounds of plastics per person every year. We've had several conversations on this show with asset managers, ETF issuers, and the people behind the products and tools in the world of green investing, but we have yet to speak with investment advisors, the people who are helping individual investors and their families assemble their portfolios aligned with their beliefs. Registered investment advisors, or RAs as we call them, manage some $110 trillion in assets for some 60 million families in the US alone. That's trillion with a T. We know that a small but growing chunk of that money keeps moving into ESG and S. SRI themes month after month, year after year. Earth Equity Advisors is one of those RIAs helping to steer clients towards sustainable investments. And Peter Kroll, the CEO, joins us this week on The Green Investor. Thanks for being here. Thanks for having me. Uh, it's a pleasure to be with you today. Thank you. What made you go down this path, Peter, as an advisor? And how'd you make that pivot all the way back in 2004 when not a lot of people were doing this? What made you want to do it? I had spent several years at Merrill Lynch, got some great training there, but it was time to move out on my own. And at the time I had been dating the woman who's now my wife, who happens to have a, a PhD in microbiology and molecular genetics. And so we were having some pretty in-depth conversations on environmentalism and sustainability and things like that. About the same time, I got to spend an afternoon with a gentleman named Bill McDonough. And Bill is an individual who was a green architect, still is a green architect, probably one of the preeminent green architects in the world. But he also wrote a book called Cradle to Cradle, which was focused on uh, circular economies. And so I took the conversations with Melissa and the conversation with Bill and put them together and said, you know what, I think I can start something that is focused on sustainability. And I started Prolin Company back then, the predecessor to Earth Equity uh, in 2004. That's so cool. Well, you and I both married PhDs. I married a conservation biologist. She was one of the inspirations behind this podcast. So we're doing something right. And here we are talking to each other. So cool. We got to make them listen to this. You say your mission is to empower your clients to magnify their impact through responsible investing. I love the way that sounds, but what does that mean in practical terms? What that means is giving people an opportunity to align their investments with their values, which is something that, you know, that's that's a tagline that I came up with back in 04 and trademarked back then because it was something important to, to really put out there what we're doing. The way I look at it is, so I'll give you an example, actually, of a client we have. We have a client who the money dates back to a great-grandfather, I believe, who was a business associate of Andrew Carnegie. This money has been in Pittsburgh for years. This money has been managed very traditionally for years. It's a mother and daughter. When they came to us, they were very uncomfortable with this money. They were uncomfortable with its origins and they were uncomfortable with the way it was being managed. And what we were able to do with these folks is we were able to empower them in a way so that way, instead of them feeling that this money was money that's away from them, that's not part of them, we've actually been able to empower them to the point where they feel like that this money is theirs now. And because of the way it's managed, because of the kind of investments that we put in there for them. And so now, you know, the daughter is giving a lot of it away. She she has invested it responsibly. She's done well, and she's giving it a lot of away. The, the mother feels just much more comfortable with the way that it's managed right now. So, so that empowerment is really important, especially in people who are having money that's passed down from generations that's been managed traditionally, and that now can be managed in a way that doesn't have fossil fuels in it anymore, that doesn't have companies that are taking advantage of their workers that are that are doing things that 
they find unethical or they have products that they find that aren't aligned with who they are. So in doing so, you are in reinvesting their money in public companies or in other securities that are more environmentally friendly, whether they're you know responsible impact, ESG, what have you? Absolutely. We manage money in a couple of ways. We manage money with diversified mutual fund portfolios that are hand-selected that I, I really go through each and every one to make sure that the portfolios aren't greenwashed. And we could probably talk about greenwashing a little bit, but we manage those kinds of portfolios. But we also manage an individual stock portfolio called the Green Sage Sustainability Portfolio that will actually have its 10-year track record as of this coming December in 2022 here. So we're, we're excited that we've been managing an individual stock portfolio over that time. So, so yeah, we are actually transitioning them from, again, a more traditional way of investing into a way of investing that is, again, aligned with their values, focused on sustainability. And sustainability to me means a number of different things, not necessarily the same thing to every everybody. And that's part of the problem that Wall Street is having right now is that definition of ESG and sustainable investing. And, and I think the problem we have with equating the two. I was checking out the Green Sage Sustainability Portfolio. It's pretty cool. You got, you've created your own index of sorts, and it's not a lot of the companies I'm familiar with. So just tell us a little bit about how you go about that index construction and so a couple of the companies in there. And what are the criteria? So when I'm picking companies for this, I've got a, a list of, of industries that I really want to focus on. Obviously, sustainability has alternative energy. That's always going to be a big part of it. But you know, people don't necessarily look at energy efficiency. You know, energy efficiency is important because the best kilowatt is the one that's never used, right? We want battery technology. And up until the last two years, there has been no way to invest really in, in pure battery technology. It's mostly been, you know, a part of a much larger conglomerate like LG or something like that. So it's it's been nice over the last few years. We've been able to have more and more opportunities to invest in individual companies that are focused on areas of sustainability. Water is going to be a major, major, major issue. This is something that my wife and I talk about often, especially out West, where the droughts are continuing to get worse and worse and climate change is going to have a major impact. So access to water, access to clean water, energy or water efficiency, filtration technologies, green transportation, we're seeing it everywhere now as EVs are becoming pretty much the new de facto. Both Melissa and I, we, we both drive EVs here that are charged with our, our solar solar panels on the roof. So we've, we've really gone whole hog into that. Another is real estate. REITs that are converting their buildings into uh, more efficient uh, buildings. They're making them healthier. That's an important part of sustainability. And I'll mention one final area that we think is a huge opportunity in sustainability is insurance. Because ultimately, insurers are the arbiters of risk. And this is happening more in Europe than it's happening here in the States. What we're, what we're seeing over there is insurers are more and more taking climate risk into account in their underwriting practices. And we really need to be seeing the, the insurers here in the U.S. start to really pick this up because for, for two reasons. Number one, they really need to push the companies that they're insuring to be more responsible and to really take climate risk into account. But number two, from their own bottom line perspective, you know, the more that they are insuring companies that might have a, a risk because let's say they have a manufacturing facility on the coast or something like that, the bigger risk they're going to take. So we want to see companies that are actually actively taking a role in this area. Yeah. Our listeners will remember our conversation with Spencer Glenn in episode one. He's talking about the major risk that has to be underwritten and also banks have been financing for years and years. So sounds like 
like he got some climate tech. Sounds like he got some future tech. Sounds like he got some insure tech there. These are the themes of the future if you're investing along this theme. So let me ask you this. How do you navigate choppy returns or, or a bull market in fossil fuels like the one we're in right now? You got you know, you got some big tech companies in some of your indexes that are gonna that have also been punished this year, but we have seen a big shift towards fossil fuel stocks, towards energy stocks. You can't deny it. That's the market leadership. And some would say we're in for another super cycle for commodities. As you approach this theme and try to steer clients into it, how do you deal with it? We're looking at this from a long-term perspective. You know, the reality is is that the majority of our equity portfolios are on the growth side. That's just simply the way it is. Value is not it is really really hard to put into a sustainable portfolio. There just simply aren't the names there. There aren't the there isn't the disclosure, the transparency, and, and simply they're not necessarily companies that are going to be set up for the future. And when I look at the way we put portfolios together for folks, we're not putting portfolios together for today or tomorrow. Even though you know we can go back to 2020, we had just an, uh, an outstanding year. We're putting portfolios together for what my colleague over at Green Alpha calls the, the next economy, because that's coming you know, really quite fast at us. And it's coming for two reasons. Number one, it has to come because we're being pushed there. And the economy is not slowing down. Innovation is not slowing down. When we look at technology, yeah, it has not had a good year and a half or so here. And our portfolios haven't had a good, good year and a half. But we believe, and we truly believe that as we move into a more sustainable and a, and a cleaner economy, we're going to see the companies that we're investing in are going to far out distance the traditional companies. That's part of what, we're, what we run into with sustainable investing is, and the definition of it is it's really hard for institutions to put a, a good portion of their assets into sustainable investing. Part of the reason for that is they've got these limits based on tracking error, you know, and tracking error is based on traditional indices, right? And so if you were going to try and benchmark our Green Sage sustainability portfolio, you're going to have a really hard time because of the kind of industries that are in there. And so that's why it's hard to get into an institutional portfolio. But ultimately, the companies that we're investing in are going to be the companies of the future. It's really hard, like I like to say, to invest for the future when you're looking in the rearview mirror, which is what you're doing by using a tracking error and you're using traditional indexes. Well, I was going to ask you that question. You don't measure against an index. So how do you evaluate returns? Do you measure against your own index? What, how do you do that as an, an investment manager? Well, for Green Sage, we measure against the All Cap World Index because that's the closest just on a just from a generalized perspective. But ultimately, if you're, if you're a registered investment advisor, you need to be indexing based on what your client's needs are. So not every client needs S&P 500 kinds of returns. In fact, most don't. And so if you're, if you're doing a decent job at planning and if you're doing a decent job at understanding your client, you can set a target return, you know, because most people need in a five, six, seven percent range, and and use that as your as your target. Use that as your as as your benchmark because it it, it shouldn't be a one size fits all kind of deal. And that's why we sort of mix and match, if you will, when we put portfolios together for clients. You've been in this industry a long time. What does the financial planning and advice industry need to help more advisors help their clients make that pivot into sustainable investing? Is it education? Is it more podcasts? What do we need to help sort of make that shift even a little bit more dramatic? That's a great question. We offer portfolios uh, that are you know separately managed accounts. And so a lot of times I'm talking to advisors, getting them to at least consider the fact 
that at least a, per, a, a certain percentage of their clients are interested in it. The vast majority of them are not talking about it. And so for us, it's just simply that awareness that they have clients and they're going to get prospective clients that are interested in it. So awareness is first, and then we can talk about education. Then we can talk about how to structure mm -hmm. portfolios. I like to say to other advisors, you've got two choices. You can either talk to your clients about it now, or they can come to talk to me about it down the road, right? And I would much rather license one of my portfolios for them to, to give to that client, and then they can continue to give their level of service to that client, than to have that client leave them, upend themselves, come to us, and have to start a whole new relationship. It actually works better for everybody when we do that. Well, how do you attract new clients to your business? We know a lot of you folks out there and we celebrate them in Investopedia with the Investopedia 100 are out there trying to market and spread education, spread financial literacy, lift the industry, educate the industry. How do you sort of attract more business into your own firm? And how do you think other, other firms are going to be able to do that? Well, doing what we're doing right now is a big part of it, obviously, getting it, getting out there. I've got a, a pretty big media presence. And I think, you know, in terms of the size of our firm, we certainly are punching above our weight class in terms of the information that we're getting out there, the articles that, that, that I'm writing on a regular basis, giving talks, although, you know, webinars, I think we're all tired of sitting on, uh, sitting on video by now, you know, doing webinars every once in a while. But I think some of the biggest impact is putting information out there. There's an article that I wrote a few months ago called something ESG investing is not sustainable investing. And we've got several thousand hits on that. We've got a number of folks who've come to us from that. And sort of the, the gist of that article was ESG is, is a group of metrics. It's a group of numbers. And it doesn't necessarily make the be-all, end-all portfolio. You have to set some eyes on it to ask the question that says, you know, does it make sense that Exxon is in an ESG portfolio? And the reason I use that is because Exxon is in some, you know, some of the largest ESG portfolios out there. We know. We talk about it all the time on this show. Drives me nuts. Drives me absolutely nuts. Meanwhile, they're seeing billions of dollars in assets go into those portfolios. And so the way I like to describe it, and the way I described it in the article is that an ESG portfolio that reduces its exposure to Exxon is less bad. And I got that term less bad from Bill McDonough, who I was talking about earlier. An ESG portfolio that eliminates it entirely is better, but a portfolio that replaces it with First Solar or some other actual positive renewable company is a sustainable portfolio. In my mind, that's, that's a fairly simple way to break it down. When I talk to retail investors... And I ask when, when I'm giving talks and, and, and I ask them, how many of you expect when you buy a sustainable portfolio to find Exxon in there or to find McDonald's in there or to find Caesars Entertainment in there? No hands go up. So there's a big disconnect between what the industry thinks retail advisors or retail uh, investors want and what they actually want. And we try to meet that need. And I think we've done a pretty good job at it. We found that too. In a survey we did with Treehugger last year, a lot of folks think they know what it means. And then they actually select the companies that they think belong in those indexes and they're wrong, or the companies that they're surprised to see score very well across a lot of these ESG ranking tools. Always a surprise. Uh, last question for you. How do you stay on top of the industry as the chief investment officer? What are you reading? What are your must-reads or listens that you could recommend to our listeners just to stay abreast of what's going on? I know you approach it as an investor, but you're also an environmentalist at heart, green investor at heart, and married to a PhD in biology like I am too. What do you what do you recommend? Bloomberg Green is one of the things that I pay attention to on a regular basis. 
Canary actually has got a, an email that goes out regularly. But the reality is, is that I'm, I'm simply just skimming a bunch of things. Uh, you know, Investopedia is on my, is on my list, uh, of course, as are a number of different sites. You know, I'll go to the major media on a regular basis, the so Wall Street Journal, New York Times, so that way I get, at least get a sort of a balance between, you know, a left and a right view on both of those there. But pretty much my entire day is spent doing one of three things, either working on portfolios, which I'm doing today, doing media interviews, which I'm also doing today, and just consistently scanning media because um, you know we, we have to be on top of things, especially in a world as crazy as it is right now. Yeah. Hard to stay on top of it all, but I understand that very well myself. We really appreciate the time. Peter Kroll, the founder, the CEO, and the director of investments at Earth Equity Advisors. Thanks so much for joining The Green Investor. Thanks for having me on. It's been a pleasure. It's time for Green Facts, and since it's summer and outdoor party season, we're going to take a peek at what's new in green fashion, actually pink fashion. Spain's Zara has released a little pink cocktail dress that the company says is sourced in part from captured carbon emissions. The dress, which is part of a limited clothing line, costs $90 and is already sold out. The fashion industry accounts for 2 to 8% of global carbon emissions, according to the United Nations Environment Program. That comes from the industry's heavy use of plastics for fabrics and textiles in production and materials. Zara's dresses, made in part Partnership with Lanza Tech used 20% of a special type of polyester made with an ingredient sourced from industrial carbon emissions. Lanza Tech CEO Jennifer Holmgren tells Bloomberg Green that the company runs a plant at a steel mill site to easily grab the carbon monoxide emissions and put them into a reactor in a process called gas fermentation. Then, a unique strain of bacteria inside the reactor devours the emissions and, quote, poops out the ethanol. And that ethanol, which is chemically identical to fossil fuel-derived ethanol, is then sent to companies that turn it into other chemicals used in polyester fabrics or in other products such as plastic bottles and now this cute little pink dress. We're going to link to a picture of it in the show notes. It's time to unpack the acronym and deconstruct the alphabet soup that is green investing. And we're going to go back to an acronym I dropped earlier in the show. GWP, Global Warming Potential, that Environmental Protection Agency designation I referred to in the semiconductor headlines. Well, according to the EPA, the Global Warming Potential, GWP, was developed to allow comparisons of the global warming impacts of different gases. Specifically, it is a measure of how much energy the emissions of one ton of gas will absorb over a given period of time relative to the emissions of one ton of carbon dioxide. The larger the GWP, the more that a given gas warms the earth compared to CO2 over that time period, which is usually 100 years. CO2, by definition, has a GWP of 1 regardless of the time period used because it is the gas being used as a reference. Methane is estimated to have a GWP of 27 to 30 over 100 years. Check out the EPA's definition of GWP on its site. We'll drop a link to it. We're going to go out this week in celebration of environmental history, as we always do, and we're going to look up to the Great North in Northwest Canada. On June 23, 1940, the Northwest Passage Voyage began. The passage is the sea route between the Atlantic and Pacific Oceans through the Arctic Ocean along the northern coast of North America. It began in Vancouver and finished in Halifax on October 11, 1942. Sadly, these days, it's a little easier to make that passage due to global warming, and there are a lot of energy companies up there drilling for oil in those waters. Thanks for joining us this week. As always, we're going to post a transcript to our interview with Peter Kroll of Earth Equity Advisors and all the show notes on investopedia.com slash the Green Investor Podcast. We'll be back soon with another edition of The Green Investor. Green Investor.